My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, from Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica, a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives of women history has forgotten. We've always been intrigued by stories of disappearances, whether it's a fraudster from the 17th century who kept evading the authorities or a novelist who taunted the Nazis and faked her own death. We all want to know, what happened next? To find out, listen to Womanica on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast host Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I won't let my body outweigh, outweigh everything that I'm made of. Won't spend my life trying to change. I'm learning to love who I am. I am strong. I feel free. I know every part of me. It's beautiful, and I will always outweigh. If you feel it, put your hands in the air. Show some love to the new while you're there. Let's take it one day at a time, cause you and I outweigh. Welcome back, Outweigh fam. Today, it's just me. Amy is not here, sadly. We miss her. But I'm here with a very special guest named Megan. And Megan is a PhD student in clinical psychology. And Megan is doing amazing work that you're going to be so stoked to learn about. Megan's research broadly includes the interactions between biological and environmental risk for disordered eating, particularly kind of translating that now into a little bit more human. How are emotions play a role in disordered eating and eating disorders in disadvantaged and marginalized communities. Megan is super passionate about integrating the research and clinical practice to advanced care for people with eating disorders, especially those who have been underserved. So you're doing awesome work because you're helping us understand how eating disorders and disordered eating come to be. 
right? Yeah. Well, thank you so much. And, you know, I just want to say, I think you all are doing really awesome work too, kind of talking about eating disorders and getting that information out there. So thank you so much for having me. Thank you. I mean, our podcast is about a year old, actually, but the past year, it has become increasingly easy to get people to listen because we are talking about diet culture so much in the media and disrupting a lot of media norms, even from body size to color to ability. You know, all these things are being disrupted in such a beautiful way that a lot of people understand how toxic the skinny mindset is, if you will. Yeah. But what people don't know about eating disorders is that it's not just the drive to be thin. It can be caused by, as you know, a multifactorial, you know, situation. And I love what you're focusing on. So let's kind of just start with your story. How did you get into this work? Sure. So this work is pretty personal for me. So I was diagnosed with anorexia when I was actually about 11. Um, and I struggled a lot with disordered eating all through my teenage years and into my 20s, um, both anorexia and kind of binge eating. And for a long time, I think it was a source of shame for me. Um, so eating disorders weren't really something that were talked about in my family, um, I think in part because you know, I come from a mixed ethnic background. So my dad's a first generation American. Uh, my mom is Mexican American. And it just wasn't something that was necessarily talked about in their families either. So for a long time, I didn't really understand, you know, why this was something that I struggled with um, and why it was so hard for me. And that made me really interested in kind of getting involved in research and figuring out why this is something um, people go through and what are all the reasons that can contribute to it. So one of the things that we know is that eating disorders are really closely related related to other kinds of disorders, most often things like anxiety or depression. And that's actually something that kind of runs in my family and that I've dealt with all my life. And I think that really helped me understand how my eating disorder and disordered eating behaviors were kind of functioning in a way to help me regulate my anxiety and my emotions. So that was really personally helpful to me and also made me want to just learn more about that and kind of get that information out there for other people who might be struggling with it. Well, thank you for sharing a bit of your personal story. I definitely relate to anxiety and depression being kind of like known in my family, but eating disorder, disordered eating being territory that my family didn't know about. But what's interesting is you said you got diagnosed at age 11. So we get a lot of moms listening who are concerned about their child's well-being. Did a parent step in when you were 11 to, you know, say something's going on? You know, there seems to be some sort of conversation was happening for you. What was that like? Definitely. So I think what we often see with adolescents, and we see this with adults too is that sometimes kiddos might not know that something is wrong. Um, and I think that was definitely the case for me. So when I was that young, I didn't really necessarily realize that I had a problem. So it's definitely my parents who noticed that I wasn't kind of eating the way that I should or I was um, exercising too much. So I was doing cross country back then, but I would do kind of even extra exercise beyond that. So I think it was my parents noticing that and kind of getting me into the doctor that was actually really important for me getting help then and doing a little bit better. So I definitely say if parents are kind of noticing that kids are struggling with that or not eating like they used to or seem kind of anxious around food um, or maybe exercising more than kind of makes sense or for reasons that are not just like for fun. Um, those are definitely reasons to kind of seek help. And did getting that diagnosis at that age feel validating, shameful? 
Were you aware of that diagnosis personally at age 11? Yeah. So I got into treatment actually around age 12. So about a year after I really started developing those serious symptoms. So I was pretty aware of it. I went to like an outpatient treatment program with my parents. Um, So they were doing something called FBT. So I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's a family-based treatment. Mm. I was actually really lucky to get that because it's one of the most evidence-based treatments for young kiddos. And in that treatment, parents are actually really involved in helping kids eat and kind of feel better in that way. So I was aware of it. And I think, as you kind of mentioned, I think a lot of shame did come along with it because it wasn't really something that I felt like I could talk about with other people or in school. It's a very secretive thing. And it was kind of like a family secret for a long time that that was something I experienced. And I didn't actually even start sort of talking about it or telling my friends about it until I was in my 20s um, because I was worried about what people would think or if people would judge me or think that I was just obsessed with my appearance if they kind of learned that about me. So it was really freeing when I finally did start to talk about it with people and realized that people can be really accepting of it. And also a lot of other people had gone through and experienced similar things, even if they hadn't necessarily gotten a diagnosis at that young age or at any age. Yeah, I think that speaks to so many, whether it's a mental illness, or anything really is like we all kind of run around with these deep seated secrets that we think, you know, if people knew we would be we wouldn't belong or we'd be judged or there'd be shame. And like every single one of us is running around with a different little seed of shame. And then, you know, over a decade went by for you before you found your voice to speak about it. And it sounds like by doing so, you know, your friends or your your colleagues maybe were like, oh, well, me too, me too, me too. And suddenly, you know, you're it's kind of just like a big relief to let that air out of the balloon and deflate and relax and say, okay, you're not broken or we're all a little bit broken. And that's, that's okay. Right. That's what like being a human is. Yeah, exactly. Was that huge for your healing to be able to talk about something like that so young? I, yeah, it definitely was. Um, I have a friend who once said to me, like, sunlight is the best disinfectant. And I think that's a really nice saying because like you're saying, I think we all carry around things that we feel ashamed of or feel like we're the only person struggling with it. And when it's something that's a deep secret that you're not sharing with anyone else, it's really easy for those feelings of guilt and shame to build up and you just kind of feel worse and worse about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it even makes it harder to change those behaviors if you're having disordered eating behaviors or other kinds of challenges. But once you start talking about it, you realize that, you know, it's okay and other people are going through similar things. And so as part of my training, I also see therapy clients. And I think what I've realized is everyone has these things that they think they're the only one that they that experienced something like that. But usually I had someone else tell me that exact same thing like a week ago. So I think none of us are really as alone as we think. And when we kind of discover that or personally, when I discovered that, it definitely was very free and allowed me to let go of a lot of the guilt and shame I've been carrying around. That's awesome. And it clearly, I think by doing so, allowed you to do the amazing work that you're doing. So let's kind of dive into that work. When did you realize that anxiety or depression could be related to eating disorders? That's a great question. So I think I sort of realized it some through my own experience and kind of realizing that there were times when I was engaging in certain behaviors because 
because it helped me feel calmer, helped me feel better. But the research literature is actually pretty consistent about it as well. So the research shows that among people with eating disorders and disordered eating, there are really high levels of anxiety and depression with a lot of research showing that more than half of people who struggle with eating disorders also struggle with anxiety and depression. Um, so there's a really strong link in the research. And part of the reason seems to be related to biology. So we know that eating disorders obviously are affected by the sociocultural context that we live in, but they're also affected by your underlying genetic risk for developing an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. And we see that the genes that contribute to eating disorders also contribute to things like anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. So I was trained by as a biologist in my undergrad, and that's how I sort of started getting interested in learning about genetic contributions to things um, and started learning about the overlap that exists. Well, that must surely take away the shame. And for anybody who maybe wants to kind of like, let's boil that down. I think what you're saying is we have genes and the environment could turn those genes on or off, possibly the environment being anything around you. And if you have that gene and you're predisposed to a, f a factor that turns that gene on, I think I'm, I'm not getting this completely scientifically right. Oh, yeah, no, you're getting it really right. <laughs> yeah. Then kind of very, sim I'm oversimplifying it, but outcomes, the eating disorder behavior or or the anxiety or the depression, et cetera. So that's so interesting. Would you say that, um, and I don't know if you could really boil this down, but would you say that anxiety slash depression leads to an eating disorder? Or would you say an eating disorder leads to anxiety and depression or back and forth, back and forth? That's a really excellent question. And it's one that I think is still being debated in the research literature. And I think what you're saying about the back and forth is probably a big part of it. Um, because what we know is that when people aren't getting enough to eat, that actually affects their brain as well in ways that can increase risk for anxiety and depression. So there probably mm -hmm. is kind of a circular nature to it where people are engaging in disordered eating. It kind of affects their body and also their self-image in a way that can increase anxiety and depression. And then disordered eating behaviors can kind of be used as a way to manage those symptoms as well. But the research does show that often anxiety is what shows up first for people. Um, so people might have anxiety when they're younger, like a, when they're in childhood and then later develop disordered eating. So mm -hmm. that's the way it often seems to go, but definitely not for everyone. That makes sense. In your research, do you distinguish between disordered eating and eating disorders? Or I, I know when I was in undergrad, I was interested in learning about eating disorders and disordered eating because I was silently suffering with my own <laughs> and yeah. wanted to learn more, although I couldn't put that into words. And I remember that I couldn't find any research that spoke to kind of what I was dealing with, which was more disordered eating than eating disorders such as anorexia, bulimia, you know, eating disorders, not otherwise specified, even didn't really speak to what I was going through. Has the research expanded to encompass more broad definition of eating disorders? I think it has. I think there's still work to be done, but I think increasingly people recognize that most people who struggle with disordered eating are kind of having an experience like you described. So they don't neatly fit into a box of one mm. of those diagnoses, but they may still be struggling with their eating or body image um, and still suffering distress from it. Mm. And so what we think now is that disordered eating kind of exists on a spectrum. Um, so you might have people that have these very severe disorders that manifest in specific ways, but then there are a lot of other people out there who are really struggling with disordered eating symptoms in a way that might not fit that diagnosis, but is still really important to address. And when it comes to research and finding people to conduct 
conduct research on, are we bringing more people into the mix who don't neatly fit into anorexia, bulimia, et cetera? Yeah. So actually, almost all of our research is conducted with people from the community and the general population. So at Michigan State University, we are really lucky to have a population-based twin registry. And um, I won't go into all the details of that, but having twins is really helpful for getting at some of those genetic components to things Mm. like disordered eating. And in the general population, we see the kind of the whole spectrum. So there are some people who might say that they never struggle with disordered eating or body image. And then there are some people who have struggled with it really severely and then kind of everyone in between. Um, So in our research, we think it's really important to capture that whole variability because even people who are not meeting criteria for a diagnosis, you know, might still be struggling and in need of help. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself. Endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums. But I've created a solution. The perfect kids podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon, and it's hosted by me, Abby. With over 300 episodes, packed with original stories and sleep meditations, Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress, they gently slow to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, from Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica, a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives of women history has forgotten. This month, we're bringing you the stories of disappearing acts. There's the 17th century fraudster who convinced men she was a German princess the 1950s folk singer who literally drove off into the sunset and was never heard from again, the First Nations activist whose kidnapping and murder ignited decades of discourse about Indigenous women's disappearances, and the young daughter of a Russian czar whose legendary escape led to even more intrigue and speculation. These stories make us consider what it means to disappear and why a woman might even want to make herself scarce. Listen to Amanica on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic Gymnastics, Cain Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because, God, I can't stay where I am like I am where it is. This isn't going to work. I I have to move on, but I don't know where. 
A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, if no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. One of the things that you research is specifically is our ability to emotionally regulate and how that plays a role in eating disorders and disordered eating. Can you define emotional regulation or emotional dysregulation, maybe both for us? I think of emotion regulation as being kind of how you manage and respond to your emotions. So sometimes people might have an emotion, but they, and they might respond to that by criticizing themselves for how they feel or trying to suppress that emotion and not show it to other people. And we generally think of those as not very helpful ways to respond to emotions because they tend to make the emotion more intense or lead mm. to other kinds of behaviors like disordered eating. Um, but there are other ways that people sometimes manage their emotions, one of them being just accepting how you feel and kind of listening to what that emotion is telling you, which is actually kind of one of the most adaptive ways to respond, as well as just kind of thinking differently about the situation or maybe doing something to distract yourself or change the situation. And those are ways that often one can listen to um, one's emotions and respond to them in a way that's less likely to lead to kind of feeling worse down the line. And our emotional regulation skills learn genetic, both? So I think that's a question that the science actually hasn't fully answered, but they mm. are definitely not 100% genetic or even mostly genetic, I would say, because some of the things that we actually do to treat disordered eating and also things like anxiety and depression actually often involve teaching people how to pay attention to their emotions and regulate them more effectively. So that kind of starts with mindfulness and being aware of what it is that you're feeling and also being aware that your emotions are kind of there to help you as opposed to hurt you. And then figuring out different ways to kind of engage in self-soothing techniques or problem-solving techniques so that you can manage those emotions without trying to turn them off with things like disordered eating behaviors. Yeah. So what I'm hearing, and I was kind of applying my own personal story here, which is I had no emotional regulation skills growing up, which I think a lot of people don't. Yeah. And everything that I've learned has been learned. I've, you know, mindfulness is a huge part of my journey. And I teach what I call modern mindful eating to my students in a program called Fork the Noise. And what I find most amazing about the work that I do is when students apply it, it bleeds into the rest of their life. So we start with the food and then it turns into regular life. Or sometimes my students have an easier time applying the mindfulness concept to life. And then it comes back to the food because you have this expanded, less reactive, less cyclical reaction to your negative thoughts or even your thoughts in general. And I kind of picture it in a circle. Like if my if my brain was going one way in one direction, one day it stopped and it started going in the other direction. And the first way didn't serve me and the second way really did. But I don't know always how to put that into words. So do you find that, you know, working with a therapist is the best way to learn emotional regulation and things like that? Yeah. So 
I'm a big fan of therapy. I always think that if you think you can benefit from therapy and often even if you don't think you can, you can. Mm. Um, So I think therapy can be a really helpful resource for using these and learning these kinds of skills, Um, especially therapy that's focused on things like mindfulness or um, dialectical behavior therapy, which is sometimes called DBT, has been shown to be helpful for people with eating disorders in terms of recognizing and learning to regulate their emotions. And I think a therapist can also be really helpful in helping you learn to accept your emotions and not judge them as much or judge yourself for having them. Because I think it can be really easy to get into the trap of thinking you should feel differently or you're a bad person if you feel guilty or angry or sad. And really that's not true because we all experience those emotions. And so being able to learn that those emotions are natural and okay, I think is an important part of the process. And your research keeps showing us that this emotional regulation plays a role in the development of disordered eating and eating disorders. Yeah. So um, there's been a lot of research looking at that across time. Um, So what we see is that when people have a hard time regulating their emotions or are kind of prone to anxiety or depression, like we were talking about earlier, that kind of sets them up for being at higher risk for disordered eating down the line. And what we see is that when people get treatment and learn kind of how to manage their emotions more effectively, then their disordered eating tends to go down as well as their symptoms of anxiety and depression. So like you were talking about can kind of generalize to multiple things. And especially a lot of research has been conducted with people who might experience binge eating or other kinds of dysregulated eating, where often that kind of eating can be triggered by really intense negative emotions. And the thinking is that when you have that behavior, it might help you feel better temporarily, but often people afterwards um, will feel sort of guilty or ashamed, and it can lead to sort of a vicious cycle. So definitely plays an important role. And then more anxiety, more shame, more feelings like you need to, you know, usually restrict, which leads to another binge. And then before you know it, you're in that cycle. Exactly. So it's pretty cool because your research isn't just looking for what causes eating disorders. You're also looking for not just the cause, but how to escape it or break the cycle. Right. Right. Yeah. What would you say most of your research is focused on? That's a good question. So I think that I often kind of think about those things as being a little bit interchangeable in terms of like what causes it and what maintains it. They can sometimes be different, but often the things that start it off can be the things that sort of keep it going. So my research focuses on kind of how emotions can play a role in any part of that. So in getting started with disordered eating um, in terms of anxiety and depression contributing to that, but also why eating disorders or disordered eating might continue. And, you know, I think it's kind of complicated sometimes to disentangle what came first and what came second. So we use special research designs to do things like that, like having longitudinal studies where we track people over time. Mm. Um, So some of our research looks at that to kind of see like what came first and what came second. But I think when you have people who are struggling with disordered eating, like the most important thing, I guess, is trying to figure out how to help them feel better once they're in that situation. So my hope is that by researching kind of how emotions contribute, we can sort of develop better treatments to help people who might be experiencing eating disorders. And Elway has quite the range of listeners when it comes to age, probably 16-year-olds, I'm sure we have. But a lot of our listeners who write in are 50, 60, 70. 
and they feel like it's too late for them. And they'll ask us, you know, do I have a chance at this? And I personally think they do, but I'd love to know if your research looks at populations who are perhaps 40, 50, 60, 70 even. So my research hasn't looked at that specifically. We have tended to focus on younger populations just because of some other aspects of our research. But I think, you know, to what your listeners would say, I think, you know, there's no evidence that it's ever too late for someone to be helped with something, like no matter the age of the person coming in, whether they're really young or whether they're kind of more advanced in life, like people can always kind of benefit from help. And like, it's never too late to change or to start to feel better. So all the research that we have shows that the treatments that work for people who are in their 20s should also work really well for people who are in their 50s and older, although obviously some aspects of a person's life might be different at that time. So I think, you know, no matter what a person's age, there's definitely hope for them to recover. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. And tell us a little bit about eating disorders and the prevalence in disadvantaged or marginalized populations. What are we seeing there compared to, I don't know the right word, their regular populations? No, it doesn't sound right. <laughs> yeah, like more advantaged populations. Yeah, advantage. Let's go with that. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's kind of the other arm of my research. And I think of them as being related because people who are disadvantaged or marginalized who are experiencing discrimination or poverty, they're under a lot of stress, right? Right. So if mm. we think that being under a lot of stress and experiencing a lot of negative emotions can be a risk factor for eating disorders, then it makes sense that people who are experiencing that kind of stress um, or those kinds of negative emotions might also be at higher risk. Um, and for a long time, I think there have been stereotypes out there about who eating disorders affect. So usually mm. it's a thin, young, white, female individual. And what we know now, and also, you know, I think this resonates with what you said about your listeners is that that just is not true, that eating disorders occur in all kinds of people of all racial and ethnic backgrounds and ages and socioeconomic statuses. And what the research increasingly shows is actually that belonging to a disadvantaged or marginalized group can really increase your risk. So one of the places that that shows up is food insecurity. And this probably makes sense. Like if you can't get enough food to eat and you're also experiencing other stressors that go along with poverty, your chances of experiencing an eating disorder are actually a lot higher, um, both at that time and then if you experience that as a child later on in life. So those that's kind of what their research is showing. And for people who experience things like discrimination because of their race or their sexual orientation, the risk is actually higher for those people as well. And there's some research showing that it may be actually that discrimination per se that it is increasing their stress and increasing their risk. So the risk factor is the discrimination. Exactly. How can we help those communities who are most in need? What can we in the advantaged communities do to help those struggling with disordered eating and eating disorders in disadvantaged populations? So I think one thing that's really important is awareness, because going back to those stereotypes, um, and it's really unfortunate, but the research shows that even clinicians or people who work with people with eating disorders might hold some of those stereotypes, even potentially without being aware 
aware of them. Mm -hmm. So just being aware that someone who might not look like the eating disorder stereotype might be suffering from an eating disorder, I think is really important. And kind of related to that, I think making sure that services are available and accessible to people is really important. So often, for example, a person might have like Medicaid insurance and there are not a lot of therapists who take that kind of insurance. So I think increasing availability and making sure that people who may not have the financial resources to pay out of pocket, for example, can still access services and access care is really important. A lot of public health initiatives need to be changed so that these people in these communities have access to mental health care. Exactly. Yeah. I think that there can be a lot of barriers for accessing treatment, even for people who are advantaged in many ways, especially when it comes to eating disorders. So you can imagine that if someone doesn't have very many resources or connections to mental health services, it might be even harder. So I think increasing awareness and also increasing access is kind of what's most important to help people get the assistance that they might need. And when it comes to kind of going back out to your work relating to uh, anxiety and depression, do you study how the variables change when a person is put on medication like an anti-anxiety medication or an antidepressant? Yeah, so we don't study that directly, but there is some research on it. So the research suggests that medication can actually um, really help some people with disordered eating with some caveats. So sometimes when people are really underweight or engaging in a lot of disordered eating behaviors, it actually changes their biochemistry so that the medications don't work quite Mm. as well in their brain as they otherwise would. So sometimes the first step is really helping the person's body kind of get back to a more stabilized place where their brain and their biochemistry is functioning maybe more typically. And then the medications can be helpful for things like depression and anxiety that might be fueling eating disorder. So it's kind of a a dual barrel approach there. That's probably why it's so important to be working with a team that includes a therapist, oftentimes a dietitian, to make sure that you are eating enough, that your brain is getting all the nutrients that it needs so that the medications can be dosed properly and changed accordingly, but knowing that they are kind of working as they should be. Exactly, exactly. I think eating disorders are really complicated and they involve our minds, but also our bodies. And so making sure that we're sort of taking care of all those aspects of it is really critical to kind of give people the best opportunity to achieve recovery and just feel better in life. And I think you hit the nail on the head, which is eating disorders are complicated and most people don't understand that. Even people with eating disorders don't understand that. They feel frustrated that they can't just recover, that they can't just eat the food or not binge on the food or not compensate for the food. But what you're doing is so important because it's really assessing all the variables and kind of showing you know, us public that there's so many more pieces to the public that doesn't meet the eye. So your work is so important. And Amy and I want to thank you for doing it and for sharing it with us and for also sharing your personal story today. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, And thank you again for having me and for doing this and sharing this information with people out there. It's really great. Do you have social media or anything where anybody can go find you or you stay under the radar and we can just maybe read your research? Can we link anything in the show notes to show off the amazing work you're doing? Yes. So I'm a nerd and I have no social media presence. Good. We but love I- that. 
<laughs> I do have um, like a research page. So I can cool. definitely send you the link to that so you can take a look at some of the research articles that I've worked on. That'll be awesome. We have tons of like nutrition students and social work students who I'm sure would also just be interested to just read the amazing papers that I got to take a look at before this episode. And you're really doing amazing work. So thank you so much for your time, Megan. Thank you. I really appreciate it. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, from Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica, a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives of women history has forgotten. We've always been intrigued by stories of disappearances, whether it's a fraudster from the 17th century who kept evading the authorities or a novelist who taunted the Nazis and faked her own death. We all want to know what happened next. To find out, listen to Womanica on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.